so Inferno. So much Inferno. So much Inferno, which got me thinking about the Secret Wars series, which got me thinking about Battleworld, which got me thinking about Star-Lord and Kitty Pride because Widget. Who's just shown up where we are in Excalibur. Yeah, so do we know what Battleworld Widget's deal is? Well, we know she's a version of Kitty Pride. Wait, what? Like the original. Widget is Shadowcat. Widget is Earth-811 Shadowcat's consciousness partially merged with Sentinel. Ah, Okay, so what's she up to on Battleworld? Mostly helping Gambit thwart the Battleworld version of Age of Apocalypse Shadowcat, and then getting briefly romanced by Star-Lord. Wait, AOA Kitty? Or does Star-Lord actually have a thing with Widget? You know what, Miles? I am actually going to let Sam Humphreys do the heavy lifting on this one, seeing as how it is his fault to begin with. So hey Sam, what's up with Star-Lord and Widget on Battleworld? Hey gang, so it is my fault, I guess. What the deal is, is that uh, Gambit used widget against uh, AOA Kitty and Star-Lord because it means that AOA Kitty wouldn't be able to phase through widget, but because widget is a version of Kitty, Star-Lord knew widget's secret weakness, which is singing her a romantic Disney song, which led to a near robot makeout. Whoa. Okay. And so these characters, they're thieves, right? Well, Kitty works for Dr. Doom. She was a spy for Apocalypse, but then she got busted, and then Doom and his uh, daughter uh, Valeria leaned on her to become one of Doom's secret spies. Okay, okay, wait. So we know Kitty's from the Apocalypse part of Battleworld, but where is this version of Star-Lord from? Star-Lord is from the universe that shall no longer be named, a.k.a. the 616. He's one of the heroes who survived in the Battleworld on Reed Richards' life raft. And now he's a spy for Doom? No, 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 no. He's a he's a lounge singer. That's how he uh, makes his living on Battleworld. There's uh, no Disney movies on Battleworld, so he's uh, been pretending that he's been inventing all these songs that he's been lifting from classic cartoons. Uh-huh. Like a solo Sinatra-style thing? Uh, almost. He's got a backing band. Oh, is it the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy? I bet Rocket would be a badass drummer. No, if the Guardians of the Galaxy were a band, the drummer would Gang, obviously, no. obviously be Groot. The, guys, the band is not the Guardians. Wait, then who is it? It's three-fifths of the 90s X-Factor. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 112 of J and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And we, in this case, is not just J and me, it is also scribe Sam Humphreys. Sam, thank you for being here. Hey, gang. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. You've got a significant X pedigree here. You came in from a run on Uncanny X-Force. Um, you also wrote the Star-Lord and Kitty Pride Battleworld miniseries that we talked about in the cold open. And you've been writing the book that Kitty Pride's been running around in lately um, in Guardians That's of right. the Galaxy. Uh, Legendary Star-Lord <laughs> yes. and the uh, Star-Lord post-Secret Wars uh, version and also the uh, Black Vortex Guardians of the Galaxy X-Men crossover. So much SpaceX stuff. I love it. One thing we learned about you is that you are also a huge fan of Inferno, right? Oh, absolutely. Inferno hit like right at that part in my life where I went from like comic collector to weekly comic buyer. Back then it was Fridays, but at, at that point I'd been migrating into what we would now call a Wednesday reader. And I, I remember being specifically about Inferno because I was so psyched about the series and my local comic books store owner was like, oh, 
you got to come here on Friday because these books are going to sell out. And that sounded like the worst thing in the world to me that I could lose out on a chapter of Inferno for a week, week and a half. Oh man. And so you were, you reading like all the, um, all the different X ones. So new mutants, X-Men, X-Factor, or did you like come in through one of those that you were more into? Or, or were, you re- were you actually going for all of them? I actually, Inferno was the one that got me onto all three of those or, uh, all four of those really, um, all at the same time. I had been an uncanny X-Men fan for sure. New mutants fan Excalibur. I hopped onto when it started. Um, but X Factor was an odd one for me because I came to um, the X Men universe after X Factor had started, and they're always kind of off to the side. And the book that like the main X Men like tried not to talk about when they did Wolverine would get all maudlin about it. <laughs> I was like those are it, they're, they're like mutant hunters. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I was also too young at the time to get. Walter Simonson's artwork, but it was around Inferno where I was like, this guy is badass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I originally came to him through uh, Thor even before X-Factor, so when I first oh, picked yeah. up X-Factor, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The one that confused me was Bill Sienkiewicz. I didn't understand his art when I was a kid at all, and later on, I was just realizing, oh, wait, yeah. this guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. Once you get to that age, that Demon Bear age, and you, you work back when you like are well-formed enough to get the art on Demon Bear, that's a magical time in any young X-Fan's life. Yeah, it really, really is. So we've talked a lot about the major X titles and how they tie to Inferno. You guys have been going through it. It's been crazy. Yeah, we've it's done been what? Is this, is this months, number five or number years? six? I, I've forgotten the before time. <laughs> there was a time before Inferno, before parking meters would attack you and cars would yell at you and Madeline Pryor had a really questionable outfit. This is the last yeah. one, though. It feels weird that this is the last one. Like, I don't know what we're doing next. Like, the universe is opening before us. Oh, man. I mean, I think there were X-Men books after. I remember X-Men books after. I think we buy them oh, every Oh, no, week. dude. You know what's after? M Squad at the mall. Jubilee shows up in the next yes. X Men issue. Oh yeah. You so guys we, have the uh, Invasion parody, or was that after Fall of the Mutants? No, that's around now with the Jean Grey bomb. Yes, the Jean Grey bomb. Yeah, that's yes. coming right up. Yes. Yeah, I think Comic that was shaded its finest. Oh man, I think that was actually an early Rob Liefeld issue, it if was. I recall correctly. It was indeed. It was mm-hmm. doing yep. doing an early Todd McFarlane riff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're actually yeah. going to talk about some McFarlane stuff uh, today, right? Know, which yeah. actually is a good segue because we are still on Inferno for one final episode. And this time we're going to do two things. We're going to first take a very, very rapid fire look at every single Inferno tie-in because we are gluttons for punishment. There are 25. And depending on how you count, possibly more. Right. And then the bulk of the episode, I think, is going to be just post-game discussion of the event as a whole. And Sam's going to join us more actively for that part. So as far as Inferno tie-ins, we've seen tie-ins with X crossovers before, um, mainly with Fall of the Mutants. You know, we saw like Power Pack and Captain America and some other characters dealing with the Horseman's attack on New York for the most part. And with Inferno, that gets a lot bigger because we don't just have like a fight going on in New York City. We have all of Manhattan turning into an increasingly horrible hell dimension. And given that for whatever reason in the Marvel Universe, possibly because Marvel was in New York, like half the superheroes are in New York itself. It is a really big city, Miles. Um, A lot of people there. But regardless, what about like, you know, Peoria? What about the Avengers of Peoria? I mean, I feel like the Great Lakes Avengers cover Peoria. Uh, Maybe. I'm not. I don't know any geography. I just know the coast. I don't know what's in the middle of the country. But anyway, point being, there were quite a few tie-ins. Specifically, now we've already talked about the Excalibur tie-in, which is kind of an X book and kind of not at this point. There's also a story, the backup story, an X-Factor annual number four, which we're going to get to pretty soon. But what we're covering today are specifically 
Amazing Spider-Man 311 to 313, Spectacular Spider-Man 146 to 148, Web of Spider-Man 47 to 48, Avengers 298 to 300, Cloak and Dagger Volume 3, Number 4, Daredevil 262, 263, and 265, Fantastic Four 322 to 324, Power Pack 42 to 244, and we're going to skip out on the what if and damage control tie-ins because they're a little too tangential slash not continuity based, but that is a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. So we should probably get started. Indeed, we should. Before we do that, there was one cool thing I found, which was that apparently Bob Harris, who was doing a lot of edity stuff at Marvel at the time, I think he might have been the, the EIC, he had apparently more than 20 pages of outlines just tracking where any given character was at any given time and where their plots were going. So like in theory, the fact that Nastier shows up in about 40 books over the course of three months, like that's all supposed to make sense. No, it's actually really tightly put together. And you can track based on things like when Nastier gets a techno-organic virus, when the portal opens and closes at different points, etc. Okay, so... 20 I, pages of timelines, that's amazing. I'm going to have to ask Bob about that. <laughs> see if he's I'm still, curious. See if he, I want to see that wall I was going to say, see if he's still got them and if we can post them somewhere, because that gonna, is amazing. I'm gonna ask, and I'm going to keep a close eye out. I'm going to see if he exhibits any symptoms of PTSD. And if he does, I'm just going to back away slowly. That's probably for the best. I mean, you know, if you see like a demonic glint in his eye or if he starts to get the T.O. virus himself or something. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so I guess, yeah, let's start out with Avengers. And I think, uh, Jay, you're going to talk about that, right? Avengers is basically two separate stories. This is issues 298 to 300. 298 is a standalone and it's my favorite of the set. This is a story about Jarvis, who is currently living with his mother because the Avengers have been disbanded, going out into New York having adventures, getting the girl, seeing who framed Roger Rabbit, and basically intimidating the hell out of a bunch of possessed machines by judiciously threatening them. It's lovely, it's really lighthearted, and it's very much the same voice as the Jarvis I'm most familiar with, which is the one from Agent Carter. So if that's where you're coming in from, you will enjoy the hell out of this. It's not really related to any of the larger story of, of the X-Books, but it's a really, really delightful and really accessible standalone. I kind of want to turn that into a series, though, like Jarvis, Agent of Civility or something. Yes, although he's not very civil to the possessed machines. Now, that brings in a character who apparently had been absent from the Avengers sometime. That is Steve Rogers, who these days is just going as the captain. Wait, like the captain, like from Next Wave? Yes, like that, but not really. Okay. The next three issues focus... Partly on him and partly on the Richards family, who I believe at this point were separate from the Fantastic Four. They're still wearing Fantastic Four costumes, though. Those things are comfy. My sense of how the Marvel Universe works outside of, like, X-Men and Daredevil at this point is really iffy, so I'm going to gloss a lot of that. You know, it's interesting, if I could dive in real quick, is that an Inferno crossover issue is actually Avengers 300, which is a milestone issue for the Avengers. And I think it underscores, like, We think about Inferno now, we don't remember what a big deal it was for the entire Marvel Universe at the time, but certainly now you would not have Avengers issue 500 or 600 being subordinate to an an X-Men event. Yeah, no, Avengers 300 was what brought the team back together after they'd split up. Happens at the very, Mm -hmm. very end of that. And what gets them there is centered around Franklin Richards. Franklin Richards is Rita and Sue's functionally omnipotent mutant toddler four-year-old, perpetual four-year-old. Thereabouts. He is sought after by some villains who we've seen mostly in X-Factor previously, who basically fall off the map in the X-Books for a little while. Those are Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Nanny and the Orphan Maker are former employees of, I believe, the right. Uh, Yeah, Nanny is. The Orphan Maker is a little kid in a big power suit who she sends to kill parents and kidnap children in a very, very misled solicitous quest to keep the kids safe. And she sends Orphan Maker after Franklin. Franklin is able to keep him from killing his parents, giving us decades and decades more of Fantastic Four books, but he is kidnapped. Sue and Reed and eventually uh, Steve Rogers, the captain with them, and Gilgamesh end up questing around, getting him back, fighting demons. 
it's also where we get the closest confirmation initially that Orphan Maker is a kid because Franklin ends up stuck in a very similar suit of power armor. He's kidnapped briefly by Nastier, who's going to use him because he's nigh omnipotent, basically as a backup engine for the portal that he's got open to Limbo. That dude has so many backup plans. He does. He has a lot of backup plans. Unfortunately, none of them actually end up working because Sue is able to rescue Franklin. The Avengers reband and some stuff goes down with the Eternals that I'm not going to go into. Jarvis gets a new job and no longer has to live with his mother. But yeah, Sam, that's a really good point. And I think that does underscore just what a big deal the X line was in the late 80s. Like it was selling like crazy. And a lot of the other books were kind of, you know, jumping onto that. So a big central event like Inferno for the X-Men, the fact that it was such a milestone for the Avengers as well, that's huge. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you do have the connection, of course, with Walter Simonson writing those Avengers issues, uh, which unfortunately had a really short run on Avengers, but it was great. But it's interesting to note that even then, uh, I think it was the same month that Avengers hit 300, Thor hit 400, and Captain America hit 350. And I mean, that's like a major trifecta of anniversary issues for now we consider, you know, three of the biggest books in the Marvel Universe. But back then they were just drowned out by demon mailboxes and vacuum cleaners. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard to compete with that. Well, it's really interesting <laughs> to seeing the extent to which those other things do or don't bleed into the tie-in issues. Because you have ones like this that are very, very tied to the central plot and structure of Inferno. And we're going to get to Fantastic Four eventually. And it's like window dressing on two pages. Mm-hmm. So speaking of books that were more central in the line, I think there were three Spider-Man titles at this point. Uh, there were, which, you know, yeah. no great change there. But yeah, it was interesting. So I, I haven't read a lot of late 80s Spider-Man. So this was me jumping into some stuff I'd never read before. I read the newspaper strips. I actually collected the entire run of the Spider-Man Beast crossover newspaper strips from the 90s. Like I cut them all out and put them in order and paper clipped them together. I don't know if I still have them. Uh, you gave them to me and I decoupaged boxes with them. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at this point, there was Amazing Spider-Man, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, and Web of Spider-Man. And one thing I didn't realize is that they did basically what Uncanny X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men were doing in the mid to late 90s. The stories would just flow from one title to the next to the next every month. So you kind of had to follow all of them if you wanted to catch everything. And that's basically what we see here. So I'm not going to go into uh, great detail because this is a lot of issues. It's three titles throughout all of Inferno. But um, I will say, so we mentioned McFarlane earlier. And, you know, his art on just drawing people and drawing normal stuff is fine. But the way he drew Spider-Man, like swinging around the city, is freaking gorgeous. And I love it. And I think the reputation is totally well-deserved of his run on art. And it's like kind of seeing him do like demonic stuff as a little precursor to his spawn work. Yeah, that's totally true. I hadn't thought about that, but that's absolutely the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a few years before all that, of course. And um, it, it really speaks to the uh, the the art lineup that you guys have been talking about for uh, 12 episodes now. I can't remember, but the art lineup on Inferno where you have Sylvester, Simonson and Blevins and even Tom McFarlane has to take a backseat to that trio. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I, we've mentioned before, but like, especially even artists who have been sort of controversial in their runs like Blevins are just mm-hmm. stellar in Inferno, stellar. Yeah. So yeah, in Spider-Man, I mean, we have a whole lot going on. And part of it is what we're going to see throughout many of the tie-ins, which is just sort of background weirdness going on. Well, Spider-Man is so grounded in New York as a place. I got to think that that's got to tie in closely here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you know, you're seeing various possessed objects and items and like the lions from the front of the New York Public Library that the Exterminators fought. Spider-Man fights them. I thought the Exterminators blew them up. But whatever, I guess they got better. Maybe there are backups. Mr. Sinister just stacks. has a bank of clones of lions. Because why not? You never know. I just assume that the NYPL has one sort of in the stacks that they can roll out as necessary. Just in case. I mean, there are superheroes and supervillains. Emergency These things backup happen. lines. When you live in Marvel New York, that's the kind of thing you have to consider. It is, totally. But yeah, and then there's weird stuff like at one point a shark attacks a taxi that Peter and Mary Jane are in. 
Because why not? Yeah. Good shark. Well sharked. And there are also things like that tie into the plot more. So, for instance, uh, there's some stuff that I'll get to in a moment about the lizard. His family goes to visit him. That's Kurt Connors, who's a scientist who occasionally gets all lizardy. Reminds me of Sauron, actually, a fair bit. But when they go to visit him, a cop helps them into the library where he's working and then opens the card catalog to O for occult and a bunch of demons come out of the card catalog, which I thought was super, super clever. Remember card catalogs? I do remember card catalogs. Yeah. Me too. Remember card fondly. catalogs and Ghostbusters? Yeah. Oh, of course. Which, this is them one up in Ghostbusters, pretty much. Again, I feel like if there's an Inferno drinking game, it's Ghostbusters references. Oh, there are so <laughs> many, yeah. Yes, Ghostbusters absolutely. references and Nastier showing up. <laughs> you need one of each in every issue, ideally. My favorite weird possessed thing part of all the Spider-Man run, though, is that at one point he ends up finding the warehouse where the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade Spider-Man float is stored, like the float of him, and it's all possessed and he has to fight it and he actually ends up popping it using the antenna from the Chrysler building. Does he specifically track it down to check and see if it's okay or something? Like, does, it, does he go of, out of his way to seek this? He just sort of randomly <laughs> runs into it. I is intact. Yes. I need to check on this right now. All those innocent civilians, they can hang on a sec. I'm sure they'll be okay. One of the things I really like in this is that we realize that for a lot of the superheroes who are superheroing at the time, they have no idea what's going on. And so, like, Spider-Man keeps coming up with all these potential alternate explanations for what's going on. Like, he thinks maybe it's Mysterio, which actually, at first, it is. But after that, he's like, wait, I put Mysterio in jail. How are these things still happening? Then he starts wondering if things like Harry Osborn remembering his past as the Green Goblin might be causing some kind of psychic feedback and possessing the city. Do you get the feeling that a lot of the superhero problems of the 1980s, especially the late 80s, could be solved if they just ever talk to each other? I feel like there should just be a message board for superheroes, even if it's the 80s and it has to be a physical, like, bulletin board yeah, or something. Yeah, it's just a bulletin board somewhere. It's like, hey, demonic evasion, it's an X thing, don't worry about it, or something like that. This is, this is another example of a story that's ruined by the invention of cell phones and text messaging. Right, seriously. On a brief side note, I tend to run role-playing games when I run them set back before cell phones and the internet were a big thing, just because that derails every possible plotline a GM could have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> Well, smart. it's every plotline here. Can you... I'm trying to think of what X Factor, all of the X Factor, oh my god, they're actually mutant hunters, no one knows what anyone else is doing stuff, just would have been fixed in a world with digital media. Just a single text Absolutely. message could yeah. have cleared it up. Well, or, yeah. or just being able to reach worldwide news easily. Yeah, or just being able to hit them up and be like, yo, what, what, what the hell do you think you guys are doing? I mean, after a while reading that stuff, it seems like there's definitely, uh, they're, they're stretching and even, even the characters feel annoyed that they have to keep the book separate. And I agree, and that's one of the reasons that Inferno is so cathartic, because it's one of those finally kind of storylines. Jay, you mentioned worldwide news. Speaking of news that is not particularly worldwide, one of my favorite parts of the Spider-Man issues is seeing the Daily Bugle deal with all this, because basically the Bugle is under siege from demons, being led by J. Jonah Jameson, who Wait, is like— the demons are being led by J. J. Jonah Jameson? Oh, no, you know what I mean, no. He's, he's uh, I, I don't. I can reasonably see that going either way. <laughs> I suppose that's Actually, true. Actually, yeah, that, that's a great idea. We should write that down. <laughs> Make it happen. But yeah, and so, you know, he's basically combating these demons and leading his employees through the sheer power of orneriness— which is pretty great. My favorite JJJ thing is the headline. Oh, yeah. At one point, he's angry with his employees because they've made a headline that just says, Poltergeists! Exclamation point. He's like, where's your journalistic integrity? And he changes it with a red pen to Poltergeists? Question mark. Hey, fixed. Problem solved. Okay, that is a really critical difference. <laughs> I think it totally is. It's like putting in quotes or saying alleged. Alleged poltergeists. That's at least 50,000 copies he didn't sell for his integrity. It's true. Hey, you know, you got to give Jameson one thing. He does have integrity, even if his judgment is often quite questionable. He has 100%. his moments. 
And so, you know, we have Spider-Man doing his usual things. There's some stuff with the lizard and the hobgoblin and Harry Osborn. But there's just sort of this demonic thing in the background. And sometimes it overlaps, like the hobgoblin gets pissed off that he can't beat his enemies. And so he tries to sell his soul to Nastier, and that doesn't go very well. But for the most part, it's just a cool way of seeing what's Inferno like for superheroes in New York City and to a lesser degree, what's it like for normal people. And there is actually one last tie-in issue that I want to talk about briefly, which is the second Web of Spider-Man issue that ties in 48, which is totally standalone and just involves Flash Thompson and the traumatized Betty Brant Leeds, who has lost her husband and her brother recently. And also worked for J. Jonah Jameson. Which is also traumatizing. Um, But they're just sort of like holding up, trying to get away from the riots and, you know, all the weird demony stuff going on. And they're attacked, respectively. Flash is attacked by Spider-Man, who tries to kill him. And Betty's attacked by a zombie version of her husband. And it's really not until they each kind of get over their own issues, Flash Thompson with his hero worship, Betty with her trauma, that those entities are revealed to be demons, and then they blow up the apartment and beat them. But it's just a cool little done-in-one story that really takes the Inferno premise and runs with it in a neat direction. So, there you go. Eight issues of Spider-Man summarized in hopefully less than eight issues of time. So that being said, uh, Jay, I know you're a Daredevil fan. Tell me about Daredevil and Inferno. Okay, so what you need to understand about Daredevil is basically at this point, Matt Murdock's life is terrible all the time. Isn't that Daredevil always? Yeah, but like sometimes it's more intense than other times. And the Typhoid Mary storylines are kind of the nadir. So this is coming directly out of one of those. And Inferno literally starts with Daredevil apparently dead in a ditch and goes downhill from there. (laughs) Awesome. Right? So what I like about the Daredevil stuff, and it doesn't tie very much to the larger Inferno story, but we do see a lot of possessed New York. And we especially see a lot of the impact of Inferno on the civilians in New York the indifference and hostility that we talked about, I think, especially in X-Men. Yeah, and I think you see some of that in a different way in the Fall of the Mutants Daredevil tie-in as well. I remember that Mm -hmm. being a high bar for those tie-ins. You do, and you see that stuff kind of starting to bleed into Daredevil too, and actually the corrupted Inferno-wise Daredevil, who's actually, I don't even know if he's corrupted or if he's just that beaten down at this point, is just utterly, mindlessly, joylessly going through the motions of fixing stuff and saving people, but not talking to anyone, not responding to anything, and just sort of slogging through this. It's also got some of the more intense religious symbology in terms of Inferno to an extent that I think really stretches the definition of limbo or at least of the limbo relevant to Inferno within the Marvel universe and its ties to the traditional Christian version of hell. So there's that. It's I mean, I'm not, I, again, I, I feel like I could spend either a lot of time on this or, or sort of gloss it and I'm doing more of the latter. I mean, it is really interesting how this is the tie in that brings us closest to hell. Oh, yeah. Limbo as hell and hell taking over the earth where um, the creators have been dancing that line in the other books and, and coming down firmly on the more generic side of Limbo kind of being a hell or a demon world, but not the demon world. And here you have this book and a run and a character that's so Catholic focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an interesting tension that Anna Senti worked on that. Yeah, I think it's a product of what Miles talked about before with Spider-Man of characters interpreting the events and interpreting what's happening and interacting with them based on their own individual frames of reference. And mm-hmm. especially when Matt Murdock is coming somewhat unhinged, as he regularly does, he tends to very heavily retreat back into Catholic symbolism. So that's one of the big things going on. My favorite thing about Daredevil... um, that That's me miming a vacuum cleaner, Okay, Jay. it really looked like you were miming jerking off. I, I, do those look similar? I mean, you were just... I'm, I'm disconnecting. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Outline, guys. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. The vacuum cleaner thing is what people remember about the Daredevil one for nothing, which is Daredevil fighting a possessed vacuum cleaner. And it's a really small part of the story. It's like four pages total. It's just that two of those pages are a really dramatic introduction to a vacuum cleaner. 
Like, this is really lovingly built up. It's kind of amazing. The vacuum cleaner shows up. It looks weirdly like Warlock. Pokes at Daredevil for a while. He hallucinates Stick, who tells him to start breathing again. He bests the vacuum cleaner and then shambles around New York, ends up in an ICU, which then gets possessed, which is actually terrifying. Because just what I'm going to get to, actually, because um, the possessed New York in Daredevil is my favorite possessed New York by a wide margin. That's a high bar. Yeah, it is really scary. Uh, John Romita Jr. does some really, really, really cool things with it visually. But mostly, I think this is Nascenti's writing because her ability to take over the top concepts and just run with them and build up that that just amazing roller coaster momentum is unparalleled. She is doing it beautifully here. And also, again, Daredevil is such a street level character, and he's a character who's so rooted in the sense of New York as a place and its population that when you twist those things out from under him, it creates some really interesting story opportunities and scenarios, which is what's happening here. It's also got my very favorite Inferno monster. That is Officer Drillbit, who starts out as a dentist who is attacked and sort of hollowed out and occupied by his equipment, then takes over a cop and just goes around the city wreaking gleeful havoc. He is scary and he's a lot of fun. Boy, talk about psychological horror. Who could not relate to being terrified of a dentist? A dentist who was also a cop. But it is so real and it just cuts me to the core. I can barely hear about it. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. And I mean, the art of this dude is freaking terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've also we've got I'm trying to think of stuff we've talked about before. We've got a cameo from our our favorite supporting characters, the uh, Star Slammers. I love them. Those kids. Oh, Darla gets Mm -hmm. sort of possessed, which is a little disturbing. And yeah, it's worth noting that I don't know how much you guys have talked about it being an X-Men podcast, but this, this run of Daredevil. Uh, if, if you are out there listening and you're an X-Men fan, this one of Daredevil is really worth investigating and really worth oh, yeah. and reading. Absolutely. I will say that about pretty much every run, including the dubious Silver Age stuff, because sure, I, yeah. I, Daredevil is like my other Marvel title. But yeah, no, this is a really, really cool era. And if you want something to sell you on it, 365, which is the last of the Inferno tie-ins, is a good place to go for that. And hey, it's Anna Senti and John Romita Jr. If you've been reading the X-Men, you're already familiar with those guys, and uh, that should be sales enough for you. You get Officer Drillbit, and you get my favorite kind of Daredevil happy ending, which is a not-as-terrible ending. (laughs) Slightly less bad. (laughs) Where nothing's quite fixed, but you kind of get the sense that at least nothing's completely fucked, which is about as good as it gets. So um, that's my longest one. I think, Miles, you won the tie-in lottery. We decided we were going to split these up because there were so many of them, and you got Power Pack. I did. And folks, the Power Pack Inferno tie-ins are freaking great. Now, we've talked about Power Pack on and off a lot over the last uh, many issues of X-Men coverage, just because they tend to cross over a fair bit. You know, Louise Simonson created Power Pack and generally writes it, and obviously she's very big in the X-World and stuff like that. But this right here is, I think, the strongest Power Pack material we've covered. One of the things I like most about the Power Pack tie-ins to Inferno are that we get to see what New York is like before all the super, super demony stuff happens, before it's like, you know, rains of sulfur and people being torn apart by demons, just when it's a heat wave, just when everything is filthy and a little bit not okay. Now, some background for this. The Power Pack, obviously, you know, they're four children. They're superheroes. Their parents don't know that about them. And before the Inferno tie-ins start, they have a brief interaction with the new mutants who help them rescue a little mutant girl from one of their nemeses, who's this dude called the Boogeyman, who is a businessman who worked with her father, and he lost his fortune, he believes, because of the kids. He's also rapidly anti-mutant. And so at the end of that, uh, Ileana Rasputin, Magic, is so infuriated with how much he hates mutants, with the fact that Mirage reveals his greatest desire to be a bunch of mutant child graves, 
that Ilyana sends him to Limbo, as she's been doing. You know, she sends him to a hell dimension, basically doing the, hey, don't worry about it, he's not a threat anymore thing to the kids. Because that's her default answer to problems during that era. I feel like she doesn't even use a garbage can. She just, like, you know, opens portals to Limbo or something. Yeah. But yeah, so that's a thing, and that's kind of creepy. But the Inferno power pack issues open with this guy falling into, you mentioned that the Daredevil Limbo is very hellish, and this one is too. It's just a lake of fire with demons tearing at his clothing and equipment and nastier lording over all of them on this giant cliff. And he ends up basically shredding Carmody, this guy's soul, away until he himself is a demon. So once again, we see the trope that Jay and I have mentioned before of power pack issues being super dark. Carmody is the boogeyman, right? Yes, yes. The boogeyman is his supervillain name, and Carmody is his, you know, not super name. His person yeah, name. Yeah, man. His, his regular man name. Yes, regular man. That would be my superhero <laughs> identity. And so, yeah, as this is going on, what I love is that we see, like, Dr. Power, the Power Pack's father, you know, just walking home because transportation is all messed up in New York, and we just get this immensely affecting tableau of a terrifying New York City. Terrifying just because it's really hot. And it smells terrible and people are getting super like just antsy and depressed and have short tempers like that right there. John Bogdanov, who writes and draws, sells the crap out of it. Yeah, man, we knew Bogdanov was a really good artist, but I don't think this is the first thing that he's written that we've covered Uh, that we've covered, I believe. Yeah. And like, you know, Dr. Power gets home and Mrs. Power has just been trying to clean their apartment. Like the kids are all super sick. They have these horrible fevers and she keeps cleaning, but it just keeps getting dirtier no matter what she does. Like there's just more laundry and more dishes and the dirt keeps creeping back. And it's this nightmarish domestic scene. I mean, and we see- isn't it kind of horrible because both Mr. and Mrs. Powers are based on Walter and Wheezy Simonson? Appearance wise, they definitely look like it. And I actually didn't realize that until you mentioned it. But oh, man, now I want to read more Power Pack even more. Exactly. I, I think visually they're definitely based on them. So now it's like, man, the John must have had some sort of beef with Walt kind of <laughs> through that whole humid, putrid, hellish New York scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially some of the stuff that happens like in the next couple issues. <laughs> but, you know, so so the powers are all dealing with this domestic stuff. Like, you know, they try to run some water to get some ice cubes for the kids and sewage explodes out of it. And, you know, there's this mold that just keeps creeping into the bathroom more and more. Alex gets up to pee at one point. It's just covering everything. He uses his powers to disintegrate it, but it's already creeping up his legs seconds later. Despite the demons and the hellishness, Inferno doesn't involve a lot of classic horror stories, and the Power Pack arc really, really, really is. It totally is, I mean, yeah. it's, it's straight horror. And I mean, we see even more of that straight horror in a little bit more of a traditional Inferno way as Carmody, the boogeyman, comes back to Earth, but this time he is this huge, bloated, fanged demon thing. And he's going around, like, you know, taking out these punks who are robbing the cars that are stuck in traffic and stealing their cocaine and stuff. And then starts, like, just murdering other people. Like, he kills a guy for being fat, for instance. Just, you know, anybody who doesn't do things exactly like he thinks they should. And so the power kids, they're trying to, like, get over their fevers and realizing, okay, we can't really reveal our identities, even though we'd need to do so to heal. We'd need to, like, you know, use our powers to heal from this fever. What do we do? We don't want our parents to see our powers. Look what happened to that little girl from the issue I mentioned before that we rescued. And so as they're debating doing this, Katie Power starts hallucinating. Her fever is so bad, she's so sick. Katie is, of course, the youngest, and she starts talking about how she sees him. She sees the boogeyman in the cracks in the wall. She knows he's there, and her older sister is telling her, no, it's fine. I used to think that when I was a kid. And then a hand comes out from under Julie's bed and grabs her ankle and then her neck, whispering, I could have broken your neck five times already. 
I'm going to be back when you least expect it. You'll never know. You'll never be safe. And like you said, this is some classic horror movie shit here. It's very Little Fears. Uh, Oh, the role playing game. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, Power Pack in general reminds me of that a lot, just in the sense of the kids trying to protect adults in an adult world from threats that the adults aren't always savvy to. But this arc in particular is so, so, so intensely in that model. And so the parents, the powers are like, all right, screw this. Something is really not okay here. I hear it's better outside Manhattan. Let's get out of here. And just as they're leaving, you know, carrying the delirious Katie into the elevator, the elevator roof is ripped off. The boogeyman shows up and grabs the power parents by their neck and basically says, hey, reveal yourself to your parents or I'm going to kill them. And this is a big deal because the kids have successfully kept their identity secret from their parents to protect them, basically, for the whole series, pretty much. And so when they do so, it's horribly traumatizing to the parents. And, you know, there's a big fight scene with Carmody as they chase him through New York. He, of course, is waiting until they all get there to kill their parents because he just wants to cause them as much pain as possible. And the kids, they start talking about, hey, do we kill this guy? Do we really have to kill someone for the first time to protect our parents? And, you know, seeing that kind of a conflict in a book that you would think would be super lighthearted. I mean, they get their powers from a space unicorn, for Christ's sakes. Like, no, come on. dude, power pack during crossovers is always incredibly dark. You know, and we see the power parents just breaking down through all of this, realizing, wait, we didn't know this central part of our children's lives and they didn't trust us enough to tell us we're horrible parents. What we care about the most in the world, we weren't actually on top of at all. We're doing everything wrong. And so even though the power pack does defeat Carmody, when the parents are like, all right, kids, we love you anyway, he gets enraged and dives at them and they jump out of the way and he falls off a cliff, etc. Like that kind of trauma doesn't go away. And in fact, in the aftermath of it, as the power pack is, you know, going around trying to save civilians with a little help from the new mutants, we actually get to see Gossamer use her powers to uh, dull men's pain by convincing them that they're not hurting, which is kind of a cool take on her powers and the first non-horrible use of it we've seen, I think. Hey, go Gossamer. You're vaguely redeemable. Right. But yeah, like the power kids come home and their parents are just they have these smiles plastered on their faces and everything's fine and everything's normal. And occasionally they'll slip and just start talking to themselves and then stop themselves and be like, no, everything's OK. This is clearly the way things are. You, you kids have been doing what you needed to do. And that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. And so seeing the kids, you know, go back and forth between superheroing and saving civilians in the aftermath of Inferno once the portal closes up and going back to their parents, like they find Mrs. Power singing lullabies to a doll at one point, Mr. Power talking to himself like rapid fire about how he's not a fit parent and stuff like that. It's crushing. These kids realize they have ruined their family and they have ruined the people they care about the most. Man, the extent to which this particular power pack arc is the convergence of a whole lot of real specific childhood nightmares. It absolutely is. Is is pretty amazing. But also, I got to say, this is one of those points where, I mean, I haven't even read this. You were summarizing these to me at breakfast this morning. And all I could think was, I am so glad that I'm not a parent right now because this is so devastating just to hear someone talking through. And I feel like that added degree of personal relevance and frame of reference like that has to be incredibly hard to read i feel like it's almost like watching the adventures of pete and pete as a grown-up you're just catching it on a completely different level than you would as a kid it it had to have been hard for the creators who you know had to draw on their own children a lot throughout the run of power pack oh god they weren't drawing on specific things from their children for this storyline it's like they had invested so much of their actual children in these characters it must have felt like parents of a sort to the, the kids and Having to put them through these paces is pretty grim. That's a really good point, yeah, because the Power Kids were originally based specifically on, like, individual kids of the creators, right? That's correct, yeah, as far as I remember. Yeah. And it's a great example of how, like, a lot of 
PowerPack threads kind of coming to a head here in terms of secret identities and stuff. It's a great mm -hmm. example of tie-in, event tie-in creating where what you're doing has actual consequences for your book itself. Yeah. And you're not just you're not just taking your characters to a parade of demons and at the end of the three issues your characters haven't changed or advanced at all. This is a great example of using an event to have a really big, great personal consequences for your characters that have nothing to do necessarily with the central characters of the event. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, we see that lasting effect on the power pack themselves, but the genie actually is put back in the bottle as far as their parents to a degree because the new mutants show up and realizing that things are utterly fucked here, Mirage explains to the power parents what's going on. She mentions that, hey, you know, we saw that these demons were after your kids, so I used my illusion powers to create these decoy children, your kids with superpowers, these fake power kids. Here are your real kids right now. And she walks in for totally normal power kids with no costumes and no powers or anything like that. And Gossamer, once again, uses her abilities to influence people's emotions to convince the power parents that, yep, this is a real thing. These are your real children. This story checks out. And now you need to go to sleep and sleep for as long as you need. Oh, parents are so gullible, aren't they? Uh, at least when you have Gossamer around. <laughs> well, and at least when you're that exhausted and traumatized. Yeah. And sure. so they do. And like, everything's okay. But what really is devastating to me here is then you see the real power kids, the ones who are in their power pack uniforms going like, oh, I... I guess it's okay. I guess we just better leave and, you know, leave our parents to be happy with these fake us's. I was going to say they can go live in the sewer with their pretend grandma, but she's dead now. So <laughs> she totally is. I, she died last crossover. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, she died two crossovers ago, actually. But yeah, then Mirage says like, hey, don't worry about it. She, you know, unsummons the fake powers and says there's a spot in that bed for you kids and the kids snuggle up to their parents. And so everything is pretty much OK, except for, you know, returning to the state of lies and obfuscation and the fact that when the parents find out again, it will be that much more devastating. But like, imagine how that's got to be for those kids realizing that just by revealing who we were. And yes, there would have been a better way to do it, certainly. But just by revealing who we were, we have shattered like the center of our world, our parents. Like This is why I love this tie-in so much. Part of it because it really gets across just how you know the Inferno stuff affects normal people, especially the pre-demon stuff where New York's just like a little bit off in domestic ways. But partially also because the emotional consequences here, I think, are the biggest of any of the tie-ins. Yeah, this is a brutal one. And I think it's one of the ones that, like Sam was saying, that puts Inferno to best use, that uses the trappings of it and uses the context of it. And uses tools that otherwise wouldn't have necessarily been available, but were through that event to tell a really good and really power pack specific story. Absolutely. And by the way, this one is on Marvel Unlimited. So if any listeners have that, uh, I highly recommend checking it out. All of these are actually that we're talking about right now. Uh, yeah, except that one standalone Spider-Man story. Right. But speaking of other tie-ins, uh, Jay, I think you have a couple more brief ones, right? Well, you mentioned tie-ins that just pull in a couple sort of brief trappings of a crossover. That would be Fantastic <laughs> Four. So Inferno is a very, very sort of loosely added in frame for this Fantastic Four story. It is largely Inferno irrelevant. I think they fight some parking meters at one point. I mean, shit, I do that every day. The portal to Limbo <laughs> does throw off New York's gravity, attracting uh, the loquacious supervillain Graviton. And the Watcher is plotting something. There is Kang. There are Celestials. There is the Sorcerer Necrodamus. There is a brief nastier cameo. Mantis shows up and fills them in on the Celestial Madonna storyline, which I'm not going to go into because the less said about that, the better. And oh my God, then it'll be another 12 episodes. Johnny Storm <laughs> gets stuck in space trying to help Kang move Mercury. That seems like something that would be randomly generated and by a And then there's a Christmas bot. special. 
<laughs> so there you go. And that's the Fantastic Four Inferno tie-in. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that, because honestly, it's wildly irrelevant. So what about Cloak and Dagger? OK, this is a weird one because Cloak and Dagger number four gets billed as the conclusion to Inferno. And it's not. It's like the Inferno epilogue, right? That's what it says it is. I not really know. It does sort of tie up one loose thread from Inferno that you wouldn't know was a loose thread if you weren't reading it, which is apparently that Crotus and two of the other demons managed to escape the big portal closing and sucking all the demons back into limbo. Hey, Crotus, I love that guy. And again, this isn't a loose thread. This is a thread that they pull out specifically for Cloak and Dagger number four. And they decide they're going to restart Inferno. And in order to reignite Inferno, they're going to cast a different spell because Crotus has Belasco's spellbook now. And this particular spell requires, um, let me, let me find the quote, uh, the sacrifice of two mutants whose souls are locked in black despair. Huh. None more goth. Apparently. <laughs> so they immediately decide on Cloak and Dacker, whose basic theme of their book is can't have nice things. All oh, right, because they're sort of mutants at this point. They go back and forth on that. Yeah, they're kind of on again, off again. Mutants. This was this was the era of mutant misadventures of Cloak and Dagger, where they're it desperately was. trying to make uh, Clutch happen. And they <laughs> did it by uh, making them mutants out of the blue. Right. Yeah. So right now, uh, for reasons that I'm a little bit hazy on, Cloak is in space in sort of a little force field. Is he trying to help move Mercury also? I don't think so. Dagger is blind and she's living with her stepfather and sort of getting used to that and refusing counseling from her uncle, one of the like three ubiquitous New York Marvel priests. Uh, Father Bowen, yeah. Yes, Father Michael Bowen. So the demons are like, okay, well, this is good. We're going to kill them. But the spell will get an extra kick if we convince them to kill themselves. What is this, Pippin? Yeah, basically. <laughs> so they put on a large musical extravaganza based on, wait, no. Satan's got a that, soft shoe routine. Oh, <laughs> man. Pippin is so much better than this issue. Pippin's a pretty good play, I'm just saying. It's awesome. I love Pippin. I love this issue somewhat less. It's not terrible, but it was it, it is not what it was billed as, and I resent that deeply, which affected my read of it. So a demon shows up at Tandy's place and tries to convince her that he's Cloak, and Cloak is actually a demon, and he's never loved her, and everything's terrible, and she ends up fighting back. She ends up taking him out using her light powers. And she's able to tell, in fact, that he is a demon because she accidentally fires at him. And while that would have empowered Cloak, it harms the demon. And she's like, oh, well, screw this. And is successfully able to fight him off, which gives her the burst of self-confidence she needs to call her uncle priest and be like, I want to go ahead and get counseling and get back into society. And the new mutants show up and say, ha ha ha, what if you just like put on your superhero costume and come with us to space instead? <laughs> Forget therapy. Let's go for some space travel. Um, because they're trying to track down Cloak because they're trying to find the rest of the renegade demons. And they know that a couple of them have gone after him. What they've done is found him in space and pretend to be his family members and gone on at him about how worthless he is and how he's ruined all of their lives. Unfortunately what? for them, they've blown their own cover by repeatedly using the phrase the void of space while physically touching each other and other objects. And Cloak, being a savvy fellow, is aware that most of his family members could not, in fact, do these things in the actual void of space and so figures there must be something else going on. He lures them into his sort of little light capsule and there's a big flare. And when Dagger and the New Mutants get there, there's just the circle of light with his cloak in it, which they conclude to mean that he is dead. And that's the end of the issue. I think that may win the award for most, huh? And I don't know what happens next because I could not find a copy of Cloak and Dagger number five. <laughs> well, damn. And also because Cloak and Dagger number four is supposed to be the epilogue to Inferno. Like that issue is supposed to be the epilogue. It's not. It's <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Uh, that's been heavily mandated that Cloak and Dagger, you have to be part of Inferno. So just figure it out. Or tie in. It's very weird. I mean, it's a very Cloak and Daggery issue from what I've seen of Cloak and Dagger in that it's about the two of them you know, overcoming adversity and endemic misery and depression to go on another day. Mm -hmm. But 
Yeah, I do not know why this ends up on Inferno Must Read lists. Well, those are our tie-ins. I think we've covered all the major ones. Of those, um, I would say my favorite pick would absolutely be Power Pack. Jay, what do you think? Oh, man. Can I choose two? It's our podcast, so sure. One of mine is going to be Avengers 298 because it's a standalone. It's delightful. That's the Jarvis issue. The other is going to be Daredevil just because it's a really, really fascinating take on Possessed New York. Sam, do you have any uh, favorites that jump out at you from back in the day? Yeah, I'm going to go for the uh, tie-in that actually went unpublished, where it's the demon dentist from Daredevil giving uh, mouth treatments to uh, Mr. Sinister. Because <laughs> he's got those pointy teeth, yes. Yeah, Mr. Sinister's like, there's a really cool like goth night coming to New York City, and I want to have like the full fang treatment. Can you hook me up? And the demon, of course, is like more than happy, because he's like, hey, pointier teeth? Everyone needs pointier teeth. Or extra yeah, teeth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like the happiest demon in all of Inferno. You know, if you uh, love your job, you never work a day in your life. <laughs> exactly. So there's exactly. there's a damage control one, too, though, isn't there? Uh, the framing story of damage control, yeah, but it's not really central enough for us to cover, I think. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, that's out there too. So I think we're going to go from there into sort of some wrap up of Inferno. We don't normally do this, but we have spent so long on this. We've spent so many episodes that I feel like we need to sort of do some post game and just talk about the event. You and- need like uh, some decompressions so you don't get the uh, demon bends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> demon nitrogen in our bloodstream. All right. So I mean, I guess just generally, we all read this long ago originally. You guys read this not all at once too. Like what impressions did you leave it with at that point? And you know, how's that changed coming back to it this much later? What were my impressions back in the day? Boy, um, that's interesting because uh, I, I've since actually written comic books and I'm much more forgiving of the whole process. But I, I was not at the end of Inferno as a, as a young fan, not as psyched on it as I was at the end of, say, Mutant Massacre or Fall of the Mutants. I felt like Inferno had a, a lot of promise and a lot of great execution on the promise, like, you know, with a demon vacuum cleaners, but I felt like the, the head-to-head of X-Men versus X-Factor was not all that it could have been. And I also, and this is something that I feel today, I feel like the resolution of Ileana and Madeline Pryor was pretty clumsy and uh, very disheartening for people who actually like those characters. Yeah. See, for me, I I love a great tragedy. And when I was reading it as a kid, I was reading it, you know, each title basically by itself. So I didn't have a lot of idea of kind of what was going on there, you know, with like the way Exterminators impacted New Mutants and X-Men impacted X-Factor. But for that, you know, it, it was that kind of way that you tend to read comics when you don't get everything, if you're just getting a title here and a title there, where you sort of have to fill in some of the emotional and plot blanks yourself. And so for me, I think that may be part of what led to how much I enjoyed Inferno and how much I enjoyed especially the resolution of Ilyana's story. That you just gave it more benefit of the doubt than it necessarily had earned? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I still will absolutely stand behind the Ilyana thing. For me, that story just rings true. Like, I think that that's a good capstone to her journey and to really that whole era of New Mutants. But I will say that the Madeline Pryor thing, while there are tons of moments I love, does seem a little... I don't want to say clumsy exactly, but it just seems like it should have ended with the resolution of her story and not gone into the sinister thing right after necessarily as part of the same story. Like, there were things that maybe I would have done differently were I, you know, a successful comics writer, which I am not. But uh, yeah, I mean, reading it now, seeing like all of it together, like you were saying, Sam, you as a writer tend to be more forgiving. I think I, as somebody who's been going through these just issue after issue after issue that ties in together, like, that's some challenging shit. Yeah, man, I gotta say, Sam... You mentioned how writing and working in comics had had changed your perspective on this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I read this for the first time in college and again more recently. And the difference in how it reads after working in comics as an editor 
and working in shared universes. Like Mm -hmm, at this point, mm -hmm. I mean, there's stuff that's clumsy, but in general, I am still just blown away at how relatively deftly it handles just an unbelievable snarl of plot threads. Like it, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Harris's 20 page outline that you mentioned, Miles, is, is, hits home some, but, um, also, it manages to spin a pretty coherent and really impactful story out of a lot of mess and a lot of accidents. And to basically use retcons in the ways that I think we've talked about this in response to a question, too, in the ways that retcons are best used, which is to pull meaning and substance out of accident. Jay, I totally agree with you. I, I think um, that this was a Herculean effort, and I feel like they didn't know what they were getting into at the time, at least if you look at, like how it scales from mutant massacre to fall of the mutants. Those are relatively discrete stories between three main titles each. And then Inferno tries to bring three discrete stories together into one main major story. And I don't think, you know, it's a kind of like the unknown unknowns. Like you don't know how hard it's going to be until you do it. So it must have been such a, a crazy effort for them. But it comes off so well. And it does come off very coherent. and. One thing that really rings through for me for the years from Inferno is how much fun everyone seemed to be having making Inferno. For a story with like really dark underpinnings and demons and people getting eaten and stuff, it really seems like all the writers and all the artists like, like applied a lot of joy to this stuff. And, you know, it's some of the best mutant work from the three main, uh, mutant artists and, uh, the, the, the whole thing really is, um, could have devolved into really, really, really depressing reading, but it is a lot of fun. It's very entertaining. Yeah. You just see so much, um, so much maniacal evil glee in that art. Yes. And I mean, mm-hmm. like we, we've talked about, you know, all three of the artists, but I think, you know, especially for me, the standout has got to be Brett Blevins, just how far he's willing to exaggerate, you know, everything from demon anatomy to the, the geography of the city itself. Like you could tell, you know, every single panel, he, he put so much thought into it. And I can just imagine him like cackling maniacally as he draws, you know, roads wrapping around themselves and, you know, various street features attacking civilians. At the same time, one of my favorite things about it is that you get to see artists who are working in very different styles and have very different favorite things, all sort of working with the same very wide set of motifs in the different places where they focus and the different ways they interpret that. And the, you know, I love, love Blevins's Inferno issues. But part of why I love them is in contrast with Simonson's. And part of why I love Simonson's is in contrast with Sylvester's. And part of why I love Sylvester's is in contrast with Blevins's. And that, you know, leaves me wondering. So here's a general question. What other artists do you wish you could have seen take an issue or two on this whose versions of possessed new york would you want to see that's an excellent question jay i couldn't agree with you more like the the way that the three artists kind of came together at this time like they all took such a different pov on things but you know it it, it's hard not to for your mind not to jump immediately to bill sinkevich that's where i was going yeah i've got Mm -hmm. uh guy davis oh oh man was guy davis working back in the late 80s i'm sure he was i think yeah, Guy Davis would have been amazing, absolutely. Yes. And if any listeners aren't familiar with Guy Davis, like check his stuff out. He did a lot of BPRD. He did some of the design work for Pacific Rim and for well, Guillermo if you del Toro's if you want to see what he, the piece of this, what you should be reading is the Marquee. Yeah, the Marquee is really good. That's out in trade, I think. I edited that trade, dude. Well, it's definitely out in trade then. It is definitely out in trade. It's a beautiful trade. But uh, actually, and I will say, on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, Scotty Young. 
Oh, who does the, the young Marvel? Yeah, I, I want to see Scotty Young's Inferno. <laughs> oh, God. Lil Inferno or whatever. Yes, yes. That is exactly what I want. Lil Inferno. <laughs> I love it. I would kind of like to see a more traditional superhero artist like, I don't know, maybe Cockrum or Byrne do that. I just want to see like when you take somebody who has that straightforward style and just tell them to just, you know, go off the deep end with it. Like, where would that go? What would that turn into? Mm, Paul Smith, because he did those gorgeous, weird alien landscapes. I'd love to see what he would have done with Limbo. He sure did. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the... Art Adams at that time was the king of Easter eggs, too. So I think for him doing a demon version of New York, like all the detail and all the stuff in the background, you know, like you wouldn't have necessarily two pages of vacuum cleaners. You might have a panel that's like all sorts of stuff going on that's supposed to take your attention. But in the background, there's a vacuum cleaner store bursting with vacuum cleaner demons. Exactly. Yeah. For Possessed Manhattan specifically, Carla Speed McNeil. That would be pretty cool. Oh, as well. she's, oh, yeah. she's so good at the mix of the horrific and intense and the emotional and whimsical and the weird. Like, I feel like there's just the sides of sort of amazing cartooniness. This just mm-hmm. makes me want more Inferno stuff. I mean, we did yeah. just get the Secret Wars Inferno story, which was stellar. I really so enjoyed good. that. So mm-hmm. um, but like, I, I want more. I just want to see like everyone's different version of Inferno. It's such a great setup and it allows creators to go with so many different directions of it. And Something that has kind of occurred to me over the years when I when I think about it is that I feel like the editors and the writers, at least most, if not all of whom lived in or near Manhattan at the time, I feel like this is such a lovingly crafted jab in the ribs to New York City for them. Right. Like when they talk when, you know, the, the, the subway being a monster and the humidity and the mold growing up in the bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. I feel like this is like kind of them uh, exercising some of the frustrations you would have living in New York at the time. And also, this would have come out right before or right when Giuliani became mayor of New York. So New York was a very different place back then. It reminds me a little bit of H.G. Wells taking walks through the British countryside and deciding what to blow up. Oh, and where to work. Yeah. Absolutely. Sam, you mentioned Liana Rasputin and Madeline Pryor, and I feel like we need to spend a lot of time talking about them because a lot of the conversation about Inferno comes out of it, but it's really, really centered around those two characters. And it really ends those two characters' arcs. And these are the arcs that have been played out and built up for years and years and years and years at this point. They've both come back, but kind of in different forms and never really quite what they were before Inferno. And I mean, I really think of this as where both characters die. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting in that in in less talented hands or or maybe with a less uh, talented editor as well, Inferno or a storyline like Inferno would have seemed like a corporately mandated plotline to resolve the teen girl who also worships demons. <laughs> right. And also the uh, dangling plot thread of a character who reminds everyone that they're stalwart, upright, one-eyed mutant leader actually abandoned his wife and child out of the blue. It, it seemed like two characters that pointed the way to character flaws that they or, or controversial things that maybe they just wanted to clean up. And again, the execution is so good, but I feel like if you had launched Inferno today with the internet, the cries and the conspiracy theories would have been deafening. Well, the gender politics of having this event based around wrapping up and moving out of the way to inconvenient, powerful women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A hundred percent. At the same time, though, I think it's very important that while you could certainly look at it that way, 
the way those arcs are wrapped up are with absolute agency for both characters. They both take their destinies that have been really pre-written for them by men, basically, by like Sinister slash Cyclops inadvertently slash the demon slash Belasco slash whatever. And it's them saying, hey, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out the way I want to. I'm going to make my death mean something. And that's obviously much more positive for Ilyana than for Madeline. But still, I think that's really important. For me, that's very much the saving grace of Inferno. And that's what keeps the stuff I just talked about from being its defining trait for me. I think Inferno is, in general, an amazing act of salvage. It's taking a lot of things that shouldn't have happened and making them at least have happened for a reason. Yeah, especially on the X-Men X-Factor side. And I think that's true within the event itself. It's taking a lot of things that have larger contextual issues. Yeah, and the word problematic is so vague and useless, and I'm going to use it anyway because it covers a wide span of stuff, but are distinctly and genuinely problematic and should be talked about as that but roots them in a meaningful and substantial enough context that that's not their defining trait. So I'm curious. Um, I can definitely see that with Madeline Pryor, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But do you feel that that's the case with Ilyana Rasputin as well, those problematic aspects to her character? I mean, I think Ilyana's coming in in a very different place in terms of her narrative history. Madeline Pryor is a character whose relationship to the X-Men and the X-Titles has largely been defined by her relationship to a male protagonist, which puts her in a really narratively rough place to begin with. Ilyana's is less that, although that's definitely how she started. With Belasco. Well, no, I was going to say with Colossus. She's Colossus' little oh, sister. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, yeah. She is, she is the sure, little yeah. sister of a male main character who survives <clears throat> her by a wide margin both times. And she's also on a team that's, I think at this point, more than half female with other women who regularly, the traits that you think of or that you attach to difficult or needs to be cleaned up for the kids or whatever are traits that are not unique to her except for the demon summoning. Like she is on a team with other women who regularly express and exhibit sexual agency and get in fights and are very much their own people relative to the team and who are in positions of power in the team and stuff like that. So while, I mean, she's irreplaceable in the sense that every character is a beautiful and unique snowflake and people find different things in every character to love, she's not a singular entity in the way that Madeline Pryor is relative to the larger team and universe around her. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth saying that Madeline Pryor is a character who has not just existed in relation to male characters, but is a character who has been shuffled around a lot in her short history. And, and um, in in ways that, like, when you think about her now, or at least for me, like, the image that comes to mind is that of, like, a devotional painting of a weeping saint, you know, a, a beautiful saint who's crying as flames surround her, kind of this uh, this tragic character who they do, you know, sometimes make great work of the tragedy on the page, but it's hard to forget that a lot of her tragedy as a character stems from editorial edicts. Yeah, her Inferno arc feels like, and when you frame it that way, very much becomes a supporting character whose status as a supporting character has screwed them over time and time again, taking the only route available to her to become the main character, to become the propellant of the plot. Right, I love how metatextual that is with her. I mean, Inferno is super metatextual, and that is it with is. Madeline in general, too, because you can't really talk about Madeline without talking about relative roles and relative status and protagonisthood and good and evil. And yeah, she's a character who lends so beautifully to that kind of analysis and interpretation. And I think that's one of the things that's really been lost when she's been brought back here and there, that there's just really no way to bring this back, is that she's just a character after that. You know, once Inferno ends, sure, she has the history, but there's not all of what was going on in the title at the time with her anymore. Well, that's the thing. Once she has that kind of complexity and intricacy, and especially once she has those gray areas, 
she becomes impossible to just scoot back in as a supporting character, no matter what, when you do that, she's diminished. The place, yeah. the only place where I've seen her where she feels like the version of the character that I love, the one that I want, is Secret Wars Inferno, where, again, she's a protagonist. It's, it's interesting that they've been able to bring back Ileana, more or less, in a whole cloth. But Madeline is such a sticky wicket. And part of it is that because she's come from such a specific era of Marvel Comics and she's almost a victim of the popularity of X-Men. You know, when the popularity of X-Men exploded and they decided, you know, or Jim Shooter decided to start X-Factor, she became collateral damage in that editorial decision. So she's almost like a relic of an earlier era. And I think it's interesting though, Mel, because I, I agree with what you're saying that they they do end up making some good hay out of a bad situation with her character. It, but it's interesting that the sort of architects of Inferno are people who either were not involved in the creation of X-Factor or who were absolutely opposed, sometimes publicly, to the creation of X-Factor. So it's almost them trying to pick up the pieces and give the best goodbye to Madeline that they can. Yeah, I mean, as far as Claremont and Simons, because I know Claremont has been, like, extremely vocal. And in our 100th episode, we talked to him specifically about this, yeah. about thinking that, you know, Jean Grey coming back from the dead and thus forcing Scott and Madeline's marriage to go to hell was, like, the worst possible thing that could have happened. Yeah, I think he described it as having ruined Cyclops. Right, which I wouldn't go that yeah. far personally. But, yeah, I mean, you can see that attempt at redemption, like, you know, even down to the fact that every bad decision Scott made was apparently manipulation, either oh, from... I hate that that ruins the character more than the bad decisions yeah. for me that's what i'm saying like i think it goes a little too far at times i think you know not letting those characters having had those flaws even if you know chris claremont and louis simonson didn't agree with the stories that led to the flaws like i think that makes the characters more interesting i think scott beating himself up for this terrible decision he made led to some really cool development over the course of x factor leading up to inferno and i was a little sad to see that just sort of you know brushed under the rug as oh it wasn't your fault right Although they did bring his guilt back a little bit when it came to the stuff with Nathan Summers, who, of course, grew up to be Cable. Yeah, that's true yeah. as well. It doesn't completely go away. I mean, it's, we'll certainly yeah. see more. It's interesting. You see bits of it in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and you see actually some really, like, one of the few Madeline cameos when she's a ghost on the psychic plane that I actually like is weirdly in The Twelve. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and there's an issue of Cable that she's in really briefly, and that addresses some of that pretty directly in some pretty interesting ways. And I think they addressed it, this is just occurring to me now, but I think they addressed it in a, a somewhat oblique way in Extinction Agenda, where Strife captures... Oh, an Executioner uh, song, you mean? Executioner song, thank yeah. you. No worries. Executioner song, where Strife, you got me in like two words, I just say Strife was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Strife kidnapped Scott and Jean and basically tries to torture and humiliate them, out of a feeling that he was abandoned by them as parents, which is, of course, what Scott originally did to the parent clone of Strife, who was Nathaniel Summers, who he abandoned when he left to join X-Factor. Before his other kid from another alternate timeline cloned Strife as an emergency backup of that kid. Exactly. Oh, I man. feel like we're doing another uh, cold open here. Is that what happened? <laughs> I think we actually did that as a cold open. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure the Summers family tree is just like, is a cold no, open it's a in and of itself. It's, a strawberry, it's an interdimensional strawberry patch. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. So I, I have in my notes to mention the Madeline Pryor song. And 
this is something that I brought up a couple times. Just there's a song I specifically associate with her and kept on saying I was going to mention and then kept on forgetting to. Um, and that's for the, the folks who have been waiting with bated breath for like six episodes for this. It's the song Wild by Poe. I can totally see that. Yeah. So I did also want to talk about something else to change the subject a bit, which is that this to me, I mean, we've talked about how all of these plot threads have built up to Inferno and culminated in this grand event. And in a way, it feels like a larger version of what happened in Uncanny X-Men 200 when Xavier goes off to space and Magneto takes the school over. You know, that was really the end of an era and the beginning of another one. And so Inferno, you know, it's kind of that and it's kind of not like all these plot threads are wrapped up, but the status quos for the characters don't immediately change. So I guess I wanted to talk about like, you know, what does Inferno do to the line? What does the X line feel like before versus after Inferno? It feels like more of a tonal shift than a structural one. It feels like the books are kind of getting a new start and sort of getting the chance to define themselves as their own titles coming fresh out of this thing where all of the big lies and all of the big secrets are finally out on the table and they can now just go off and do their own thing with the knowledge that the other team is off somewhere else doing their respective thing. Yeah, I mean, the X-Men and X-Factor finally knowing about each other, finally knowing that the X-Men are alive and that X-Factor are not terrible mutant hunters. Freaking finally. Excalibur does not know any of this, though. No, they don't. They were too busy, like, fighting weird action movie tropes in, in movie studios and stuff like that. Yeah, no, they <laughs> they, they still don't know the X-Men are alive. <laughs> poor Kitty and Kurt. Especially right? poor Kitty. She keeps losing everyone. I think that's a really good point about bringing the teams together. That, that has been something that they've been building up for so long at the time. And it really feels a getting, getting like, metatextual about it. And I'm projecting here. I don't mean to speak for any of the creators involved. But it really does feel like X Factor is not the, uh, no pun intended, redheaded stepchild of the line anymore. It's not the book that has been shunned by some of the more central creators because it was an editorial edict that they disagreed with. It seems like everybody gets, uh, not necessarily gets along on the page, but everybody's together on the page. And the, the X Factor is much more integrated into the main thrust of the X-Men universe, which before was dictated entirely by Uncanny X-Men. And of course, we've had, you know, the uh, crossovers of Mutant Massacre and uh, Fall of the Mutants. But those were, I mean, it's it, this is another interesting point in that Inferno is a different kind of crossover than those two were. Those other crossovers were where some of the characters from other books barely had any kind of contact with each other. And even in Fall of the Mutants, you had full three full-on completely different storylines that all just happened to be happening at the same time. This is like, you know, kind of a precursor to the events where you have the chapter numbers on the cover, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to read them all in a specific order. And the three books, the three main books, have one storyline. You have to read them all for it all to make sense. Yeah, and I think the next one we'll see of that is actually a little bit further out than I would have expected. It's a couple of years before Extinction Agenda, I believe. Yeah, mm-hmm. got to catch our breath. But it's interesting you mentioned X Factor getting a more prominent role post Inferno, which I completely agree with. Like it really feels like it's standing on its own in some ways for the first time. But in a way, it almost feels like uh, New Mutants does the opposite because in losing Ilyana and in very shortly losing the connection to the school and Magneto. And having such a large cast change as the exterminators join up, like, it almost feels like a different book. They're on the road to X-Force. But that's kind of true with all of them. I mean, X-Factor is, I think, the team left most intact structurally. But personally, you have characters who are just radically renegotiating their identities and relationships. You have Angel coming back and joining the team finally as Archangel. And his next arcs are going to focus on him trying to reconcile those identities. You have Scott and Jean trying to figure out how to rekindle their relationship, especially now that she's got Madeline in her head. And also co-parenting a baby. 
Yeah, yeah. Like in the middle of trying to work that stuff out. In New Mutants, you have, you know, the kids making their break with the school and with Magneto. Their team lineup changes. They've lost a second member in a very short period of time. And now they have suddenly the Exterminators kids with them as well. And they're trying to figure out what's next for them. And in, in X-Men, I think there's slightly less status quo shift, but you're going to see Longshot leave the team. We're going to see Jubilee come in before too terribly long. And again, seeing a lot of characters just sort of stepping back and trying to figure out who they are and who they want to be as people and also relative to their heroic identities. And yes. quite literally with the Siege Perilous. Yeah, yeah. In X-Men, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That always interested me because, I mean, I always remember the Australia era as being this enormous expanse of time for the X-Men. But really, it's just a little bit leading up to Inferno and then a little bit before all the Siege Perilous stuff happens and the team scatters. And I don't know if it's just that I love the lineup in this era so much or that Inferno just makes everything around it seem bigger. But yeah, I almost wish we would have gotten a little more chance to see the X-Men kind of come to terms with the way things went down. I wish there had been an X-Men Australia Secret Wars book or world. Oh, oh man, that just that era. Yeah, That would have been I beautiful. Mean, I, I think one of the reasons that Australia is so fondly remembered and so fondly loved, not just the quality of the book and the execution, but it was such a great status quo. And it really let the team go in a different direction for a while. And it was almost became like a bottle book where they couldn't interact with other characters. They couldn't interact with other titles. They couldn't interact with other editorial plans. And it all feels very cohesive and very much like One Piece, whereas the Uncanny X-Men that follows from here, is, at least in my memory, feels very, um, I don't want to say disjointed, but it, it, there's a lot of flux and there's a lot of chaos. Characters uh, stepping away from the center stage, characters entering the center stage, a whole new team of X-Men of kind of like C-listers that doesn't really like get a lot of traction in the Siege Perilous stuff and the questioning of identities and reforming of all that. And of course, the entrance of Gambit, which changes everything forever. (laughs) Not a hoax, not an imaginary story, just a Cajun one. All X-Books become 30% sleazier. (laughs) Exactly. And spicier, that Cajun seasoning. (laughs) So I guess that's the end of Inferno. Yeah, yeah, we are done with this event for a while and we can do vaguely normal coverage for a bit. We can do anything oh man we're just gonna start covering archie comics and that's it from here on oh out. my god can we do another one of the x-men tattoo picture books I, I mean we totally should at some point i actually really want to i god that would be a good palate cleanser we don't actually have the other one so i don't think we're gonna have time to get it before we need to record but soon soon someday but in the meantime you've got questions gus mcneese asks via email we all know that mr sinister is obsessed with the summers family for his own complicated apocalypse related reasons Has he ever tried kidnapping Rachel or manipulating her to use as a weapon against Apocalypse? Did the Sinister from Earth-811 ever do any experiments on her? After all, she's the daughter of Scott Summers and Jean Grey proper, and not from a clone or an emergency backup brother. And, as you've pointed out, the only Phoenix host to have full control. So, the answer I guess there is not that we know of. I was racking my brain from everything I've read, and I looked around online for a fair bit, and I don't think that Mr. Sinister has ever directly cared very much about Rachel Summers, and that does seem totally bizarre. Because, you know, if he wanted to make Cable, that's one thing. But Rachel Summers, she has the telepathy and the telekinesis and the connection to the freaking Phoenix Force, which I can't imagine Essex would not be aware of. Right, she's totally the best Summers kid. I have a no prize for this. Okay, go for it. So when we talked to Claremont, he said that at least off page, she was parthenogenic child of the Phoenix Force. 
Oh, right. That Scott Summers wasn't that she's actually not biologically Scott's kid. Right. I can reasonably believe a sinister who is myopic enough to be obsessively enough focused on the Summers gray bloodline to utterly disregard her because she's not technically part of both. You totally get a no prize for that. Wow. Thank that's you. That's a great no prize. Nice. It's, it's a no prize that relies on word of God canon rather than textual <laughs> canon. So I'm not <laughs> sure if I still get it, but, you know, I'll buy it. You know what, I, I gotta say, I now that I think about it, I'm grateful that there's never been a storyline like this because Rachel already kind of has somebody like that in Mojo. And I wouldn't want to see that happen over, like, from two sides. In Mojo and in Ahab before then. Oh, yeah. Oh, true. yeah. Well, Good yeah. point. So I'm sure we'll get at least one um actually because of this on the comments. And by all means, please um actually add us because I'm really curious. Creeping Monsterism asks on Tumblr, that's a great name. Would it be possible for Madeline Pryor to be a hero again? Most later creators have made her purely evil, but Claremont's version could easily be someone who walks the hero-villain line in the same way Magneto does. If this does happen, how would you like it to play out? Oh god, I want this to happen so much. I so very, very, very much want this to happen. So I think to make Madeline Pryor work as a character, she has to be there, or her role has to be on her own terms, or has to become on her own terms. Again, I think the Inferno Secret Wars series is a great example of a way to use her as a protagonist well and have her rise into power well. I think, honestly, as a, a point of view protagonist, as a main character, the closest analog I can think in terms of tone and in terms of walking that gray area is probably actually Mystique. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I can totally mm -hmm. see that. Yeah, the character who acts in self-interest, who's always four steps ahead of the game. And man, I'm thinking of, you know, the Wolverines, where she was happily manipulating this team of people to effectively destroy the world to bring back destiny. Yeah, yeah, that kind of a move is very Goblin Queen Maddie as well as being very Mystique. Yeah, so I think that character at her best would be the place to take a cue from. Right. I, uh, you know, I, I, I also have very strong feelings about Madeline Pryor. That sounds like a great idea. I would totally read that rendition. I feel like, I mean, this is so, like, editor-in-chief quarterbacking here, armchair quarterbacking here, but <laughs> uh, I would love to see an out-of-continuity, like, maybe YA romance title that has Scott and Jean and Madeline and Logan. I think that would be a lot of fun. Oh, you know, that totally could, because I never really went for the love triangle as it was portrayed. But if it was more of like a teenage angst kind of thing, that would be a ton of fun. School drama kind of thing. That'd be a lot of fun. I love it. Madeline Pryor worked into evolution continuity. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'd buy that. If only we'd gotten another season. I can totally think of a way you could have worked her in there, too. It's via Apocalypse, but yeah. Well, isn't everything? All right. So final question. Uh, Franz Ferdinand II asks on Tumblr. Hi, Ben. What thing in your home would be most disturbing if demon-possessed? Oh, I got this. Our basement is terrifying. We called it the murder basement when we moved in. Like, there's this red stuff oozing from the windows, sort of dried onto the wall. You no, know, no, there's, like, there's just a big red stain on one wall that just spreads. And it's soil minerals, and it's the fact that our house was built in 1920. But our basement is actually basically a hell dimension already. It pretty much is. Like, if this was the Buffyverse, it would totally be a Hellmoth, or at least the beginning of one. All the stuff that was happening to the uh, the Powers apartment in that one power pack issue, like, that stuff tends to happen in our basement. And also, our washing machine is far too loud, and I'm pretty sure is possessed in some way. Yeah, our basement is really scary, and the, half the lights don't work, or sort of work, and the ceiling is just stapled on tarps. If, uh, we if, rent. If our episodes ever stop coming out mysteriously and no one knows where we are, uh, listeners, I would look there first. What about you, Sam? Anything that uh, is possession-worthy uh, where you live? Guys, what are you doing? Get out now. <laughs> Don't even stop recording. Just run, run, run. That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about most disturbing, but most entertaining would absolutely be my uh, girlfriend's piano. That would make a hell of a demon. Um, especially hearing like the demonic music that would have to come out of it, you know, 
probably the best part if my uh, home was demon possessed would that would be that my uh, cat El Nino would be just the most badass demon killer. He'd be such a slayer. It would be amazing. You know, we mentioned sort of very specific stuff. I do feel like the worst as far as demon possession and power pack kind of went into this somewhat would have to be bathrooms. Yeah, because there's so much potential for gross there to begin with. And so just taking that a little bit further. Yeah, I would like to encourage listeners to not explore this further in comments. <laughs> oh, geez, that could that could go south very quickly. No bueno. So speaking of listeners, we are an entirely listener supported podcast. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters. I believe that today I am turning things over to the somewhat unlikely combination of a sexy Mr. Sinister. So that's happening. Portals are closed, demons are banished, and I, alas, am dead for the moment. I suppose I best start planning my return. Perhaps a new body in which to manifest. Miss Sinister awaits a number of years ahead, so in the meantime, Casey McNamara and Chris Williams each possess the power, the grace, and indeed the sheer sensual presence that Sinister requires. And if they too have been slain? Well, only a fool doesn't keep backups. I am so disappointed that you didn't use the phrase Sinister as a sexy system. Sinister is a sexy system. Thank you. And also we should say, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my god, guys, thank you so much. As I told you in Emerald City, I am technically now a longtime listener, first-time caller, so thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Oh, totally. We would love to have you on again. This has been an awesome conversation. Let's do it. Yeah, thank you. So where can folks find you at the comic shop and online? Uh, Online, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, My Twitter is at Sam Humphreys, the most creative Twitter handle of all time. And uh, in comic shops, you can find me writing uh, Jonesy uh, with Caitlin Rose Boyle. That's coming out from Boom Studios. And then uh, very soon to begin in June, I'm doing Green Lanterns twice a month for DC Comics with Robson Roca. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our podcast is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we will emerge blinking into the light from the other side of Inferno for a whirlwind introduction to Wolverine's first solo ongoing. I go wild, cause you break me open wild, cause you left me here. I go wild, cause your promises are broken. Why, because the chips are down Why, because there isn't anybody else around Why, when the waves start to break And God knows they're breaking in Thank you.